Hello there, this is Stephen L. Sears, and I want to welcome you to the FSF Popcast. The show that would like to remind you that we're living in a Jetsons reality timeline, but, you know, without the jetpacks and the floating cars. We did get digital conferencing, though, so there's that. Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Wish Upon a Teen Foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine the comfort you'll give Redshirt crewman number 107. He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and joins Cena on a journey of the ancient world and fight for the greater good against ruthless warlords and gods, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope because the Redshirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and what's left of his chakra. Welcome to the FSF Podcast, Kids and Cadets. Our guest today is uh, the producer and writer of shows that you have no doubt watched and loved over the years, like Xena, Warrior Princess. There was Sheena, there was Swamp Thing, and literally there's so many others on his IMDb resume. You guys can go there and check that out, but those are the highlights for sure. We are super proud and excited to welcome Stephen L. Sears to the FSF Podcast. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Nice to talk to you. We'll, we'll see how you feel at the end. Yes. All right. uh, <laughs> I'm reserving that opinion. <laughs> He's like, well, are we done yet? All right. Uh, so... One of the things that's kind of become standard in our show is that in the beginning, we like to talk to our guest because you are the hero of this story. We like to talk to our hero about their origins, what got them started, what helped them get to where they're at and why they're sitting across the digital table from us today. So in the story of Stephen L. Sears, what made you want to get involved with TV and filmmaking, in particular, the writing and producing side of things? Ah, uh, you want to hear the origin story? Well, sit back, me friends. Relax, I push that with this. <laughs> um, well, let's see. I was born in a small cabin. Okay, I'll give you the, the uh, quick version because the long version would take, well, you know, 60-something years. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. So, I, um, I've, uh, I'm a military brat. So every three years, the family would move to a different state, a different military base, or someplace out of the country. And that meant that every three years, I was reintroduced to a whole group of new friends at school, uh, new neighbors, new kids I had to get along with. So I became, you know, kind of a class clown or the comic or the person who made friends through comedy. Uh, my parents uh, finally retired to a small town in Florida, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, where I spent my high school years. Um, while I was there, there was a... Um, a state play for the state of Florida uh, called uh, Cross and Sword. It was about the founding of St. Augustine, which is the oldest permanently inhabited European community in the United States, founded by Pedro Menendez de Aviles and Father Francisco Lopez de Mendoza Carajelos. I was a tour guide at one time. Thank you. <laughs> that um, was some impressive rolling of the R's, by the way. Thank you very much. Well done. Uh, <laughs> so I um, decided I was going to audition, and I think I was like 12 or 13 years of age. So I went down to audition and the only thing I had memorized was the Gettysburg Address. Uh, and so I got the role of a small boy in the colony. Um, I think mostly it's because I could yell loud enough to be heard from the back row, but I got the role and I really enjoyed it. I loved it, you know, performing. Obviously that was perfect for a class clown. So when I moved into high school, because I was junior high school right then, when I moved into high school, I started exploring other areas, uh, the drama club, uh, the drama classes, I was in the plays. I was also um, you know, in the music and the band. I was a drum major at one time. 
and obviously performing and being out and entertaining people. That was kind of my focus. So I did a lot of regional theater, all of this before I, I left high school. So naturally, when I graduated high school, I uh, went to college to get a degree uh, in medicine <laughs> because I wasn't a fool. I had to make some money. And besides, I'm a small town and what are you going to do? So without giving you the incredibly long story, um, which does involve a C in chemistry, which meant my medical career ended, uh, I couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to do, except that I was still doing theater. And there was a uh, movie that had come out uh, back then. We're, we're talking way back. It was called The Goodbye Girl. And the star of that was Richard Dreyfuss. And people were telling me, oh, you should go see this movie because he's playing you. So I went and saw the movie, and uh, it, certainly it's a role I could have played. There were a lot of similarities. Anyway, kind of dismissed it from my mind, but later on, he won an Academy Award for that role, for playing me. So I was literally walking to the student union, and I was thinking about this. And one of the thoughts that went through my head was the fact that he won this Academy Award. And I thought to myself, well, of course he'd win that, but only special people win that. And I literally stopped in my tracks and I went, oh my God, if he had felt that way, he never would have gotten near that award. And that was when I decided I was going to change my major to theater and I was going to be an actor. So I had to call my dad, the 23 year career military man and tell him that I was not going to be a doctor. <laughs> I was going to be an actor. Um, however, my dad's reaction without missing a beat he said, you've always loved doing it. You should go and try it. I, That's awesome. I, oh, I had fantastic parents. They were my biggest fans. They were so supportive. So I got my degree in theater at Florida State University. And then I immediately traveled out to Los Angeles to be an actor. I'm sorry, actor. I must say it correctly, actor. <laughs> so I started attending classes and I was getting little small things, extra work here and there, nothing really big. But one of the classes that I was attending had recently started introductions to casting directors. And so I started to meet casting directors. And, and I have my nature is not to promote myself. My nature is actually to find out about other people. I'm really curious about other people. I've, you know, I'm looking at your screens here in the background, and I'm so curious about everything that's in your screen with all the books back there. I'm just a very curious person. It's fake. Yes. <laughs> you know what? I had a fake one as well, um, which I wouldn't even go into right now, but I don't use it anymore because it's much more organized than I actually am. Uh, but anyway, so as I was talking to these casting directors, I was asking them what they liked to see in auditions because I was curious as to what their mind process was. And back then, um, everything was Neil Simon. Neil Simon plays were all being made into movies. And, so every, every actor was auditioning with that. And they just told me they're tired of that. They're tired of seeing they can, they can mouth the words along with the actors. They all wanted to see original material. So I thought, oh, easy peasy. I'll just write my own stuff. So I started writing audition scenes for myself, just little three page scenes. And after a while, some of the other schools in Los Angeles were actually using my scenes in some of their study. You know, people in my class had taken it to other classes. And one night there was a performance audition showcase where there were about seven different performances being done. And then none of us who did this knew what anybody else was doing. So when I got there for the night, uh, I was performing something that I had written. Five of the pieces had been written by me. So afterwards, one of the casting directors who was there, she asked me if I'd written them and I said, yes. And she said, you should think about writing. 
And I said, that's that's ridiculous. That's all your fingers (laughs) typing us. That's complete crap. How can you, I'm not a writer. So that night I pulled out a script that I had uh, for an old sitcom. And I looked at it and I thought very naively, uh, this is like a whole bunch of little three page scenes, except with an over arc and, you know, character threads and everything. So I thought I would try to write one. Now, in the process, I wrote my first script, which was actually the worst script that's ever been written in mankind. It sucked. It's horrible. I've gone back and I've reread it. But I mean, I love doing it. I just love being all the characters and writing it and and being able to, to adjust and manipulate. And it was just, and I had to do it again. So I started writing for the fun of it. Now, at the same time, I was working at a restaurant. Big shock, actor, restaurant, go figure. And there I had met this guy named Bert Pearl, and he and I became best friends. And Bert was also one of these guys who loved creating and writing and, and storytelling. So for the fun of it, we started writing scripts together just for the fun of it. Okay. One of the things that we would also do is if we saw a new show, we would call the production office and ask if they had a writer's guide. Some shows have them, some don't. It's a guide to tell the writers how to write the show. So there was a new show on the air called Riptide. This was back in 1983. Um, And I called over, got into a conversation with this woman um, about everything except for the business. We literally just, I called up and asked if they had a writer's guide. She said, no, we don't, but did you see the show? It's a brand new show. And I said, I love the show. And you know, where are you from? I'm from Florida. Oh my gosh, I have relatives in Florida. Just a conversation. So at the end of that, she said, well, have you written anything? And I said, yeah, I mean, my friend, we wrote a couple of scripts. And she said, well, the producers are always looking for writers. So if you have an agent, submit them. I went, great, hung up, didn't get her name. She didn't get mine. Um, I called somebody I knew who was an agent and I just told him the story and he goes, fine, I'll send the scripts over. About a month later, got a phone call from the story editor. He said, come on in. We want to meet you guys. Bert and I had no idea what was going on. So we go to this meeting. Um, we meet, uh, the producers of the show, Babs Grahowski, the exec producer and Tom Blumquist, uh, another producer got along with them. Great. We pitched five ideas, uh, three, they thought were interesting and they said, go home and think about them. So we went home, we kind of thought about them, came back. Uh, two of them we repitched, but we had a third idea, which was brand new. We pitched that. They said, we like that idea. Why don't you go write a story? So we went home and wrote a story, came back, gave it to them and sat there and watched them rip it apart and put it back together again, which we loved because their passion, their creativity and their talent, we were witnessing it. And this is like, we, we are, we're loving this. At the end of that meeting, Tom turned to us and he says, I need the name of your agent for business affairs. And that was the first time it hit me what was going on. And I, I said to him, did we just get an assignment? And he goes, you guys got the assignment two weeks ago. Okay. We were shocked. <laughs> now, literally, we didn't even know how much we were going to be paid. We thought we were going to be paid $500 for this. It was $15,000 for one episode back then. So we wrote a first draft off of that story. And off of the first draft, we were hired onto the show as staff writers. And that began my career. And that was it. I haven't stopped since. It was totally by accident, totally unexpected. I didn't plan. I have never even though I I endorse people taking classes in in screenwriting and reading books on it, to this day, um, the only book I ever read on screenwriting is one that I actually wrote. And the only classes I've taken (laughs) are ones that I teach. And that's it. I was, you know, it was just like 
and, and fortunately, I have to give credit where credit is due. I fell in with the right people, aside from my partner, Bert, who was just wonderful. Um, the producers of the show, they understood we were new at this. And I remember Tom saying to us, well, he says, welcome to grad school. We're going to teach you what you need to know, and we're going to pay you. So Fantastic. Uh, that's the short version. It doesn't get much better than that, though. <laughs> the, we're going to teach you, and we're going to pay you. Yeah. And just with people you enjoyed being with. That was the cool thing. So it, it was a great company. The second show I did was was the A-Team, the original A-Team. I worked on that one as well. So Nice. Yeah, it was something to do. <laughs> it was a good something. <laughs> so that's that's quite the, the origin story. But even in your origin story, your yes. bio on IMDb mentions your strange list of day jobs. <laughs> yes. Including trailer park attendant, um, historical marcher, trolley bus tour guide. Mm -hmm. The one that piqued my interest was porpoise show announcer. Yes. <laughs> with the what, why, yes. and how. And, and it's a typo. I was actually the porpoise that would announce the show. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, no. That was uh, uh, when I was living in St. Augustine, it's a tourist town and a tourist area. Mm -hmm. So I worked a lot of different tourist jobs and Marineland of Florida is located near St. Augustine. Uh, and in fact, Marineland of Florida was originally built as a Marine studio where they would shoot like the Tarzan films. And in fact, the, uh, the Revenge of the Creature was shot there. So it started out as a studio and then in 1938 or 39, it was turned into a tourist attraction. So yeah, I, I did almost everything there. I, I worked behind the scenes with the animals um i was a show announcer for that uh yeah, it was actually one of the best times of my life i really enjoyed working with the animals and um and explaining them to the tourists and it was also uh, amazingly enough for that time it was considered to be one of the relatively humane areas uh, for these uh we would not have a an orca in there absolutely not the aquarius wouldn't allow it because that's not the kind of creature and right. it was also affiliated with uh, the university of florida and their marine institute so but it was awesome. yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, a lot of fun. Was, it was just cool reading through the the list of strange day jobs. The other one that got me was driver for a morgue. It's like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, it you do what you do. Um, first of so, all, you know, you get you get a free vehicle and all you can eat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, that just worried me. I'm like, <laughs> but, I mean. It's got to be one of the better customer service jobs because they don't talk back. They don't. But, and here was the deal. My dad, when we retired, even though he was a frontline soldier, he became an um, administrator for a medical company that built a hospital. And so his office was, he spent a lot of time at the hospital. So I'd go down there. And one of the things that had to happen every now and then is that bodies need to be transferred from the morgue to the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And... It, was, it wasn't really an assigned job. It was something that was kind of like, you know, they hired people to do it on a contract basis. And so there were a few times when they didn't have anybody to drive the body. So I was available. <laughs> so I would drive this big van with a cardboard box with a body in it. Now you say, yeah, you, you don't have any backseat drivers and nobody to complain. I don't want to get too graphic, but if you have a body back there in a bag, and you drive over railroad tracks at speed, it makes a lot of noise. <laughs> it would. Yeah. Some of the noises you don't expect to hear. But. No. No, See, that I, sounds, I can tell you what sound it would be making. 
I, I know Hell exactly no. what sound you're talking about. <laughs> I worked in a nursing home and doing postmortem care to prepare family members mm. for transport. Dead bodies mm. make weird noises. They no. do. It's and, so if, and if your mind goes crazy, they are talking to you. And if it goes really crazy, you talk back, <laughs> which I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. negatory. No, 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 no. I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to do that ever again. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I, I don't have, I don't have the spine for that. That would. I have done my fair share of postmortem care. I'm done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yes, I've done a lot of um, eclectic jobs. My personality is one of uh, extreme wanderlust where that's concerned. If I <clears throat> if I see a flashy light over there, I've got to go play with it. And then I see another flashy light and I have to go play with that. So I ended up working a lot of different jobs. Um, writing and entertaining is the one that held me because every project and every assignment is like a brand new flashy uh, object to play with. That, that's true. I can see too that all of those eclectic jobs would help in writing because you have different experience on different dialogue options. I mean, as you as you speak to more people doing tour guide things and working with the aquarium, you'd have more of that understanding of how conversations work, I feel mm-hmm. like. But that's a lot of firsthand experience on how to make people real. And it's all it's really all part of the <clears throat> the storytelling process um, because storytellers, aside from just telling a cool story, we are basically, we're two other things, which we don't like to admit. One is that we're liars. We are, we're, we're making up people living in bizarre situations and on planets or environments that nobody can conceive of. And then we have to convince you that it's got a reality, which means we have to manipulate you. And we manipulate you through certain words, certain phrases, certain attitudes, certain emotions. We can sometimes pluck those evolutionary strings that most people don't know they have. And you learn a lot of that when you are performing. Actors who do a lot of stage performance, and you've probably heard this before, because I know you've interviewed a lot of actors. When they've done stage performance, they often talk about the fact that they can feel the audience. And that's very true. A really good actor, especially on stage where it's happening real time, Mm -hmm. they can feel the energy coming from the audience and they can adjust their performance to adjust the audience. Um, It's a really hard thing to, to explain academically but it's most it's mostly just kind of a thing you have and you feel right. it. Yeah, no, I I have very little stage experience, but I have stage experience and you do. You you feed off the crowd. You know what to do next and what's going to get the better reaction and I love that about live theater. I love the give and take between the audience and the actors. It's, Absolutely. It's That's why it's called living theater. It's not just what's living on stage, it's living throughout the entire theater. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So we all have projects and things that are close to our heart. What was a project of yours that is a little less known that is close to your heart? Hmm. Interesting question. I'm going to give one caveat to these kinds of questions, though. I'm a horrible person at asking favorites questions uh, or prioritizing answers because, again, the flashy object thing. If you ask me, like, what's my favorite TV show or what my favorite episode is, I'll give you one answer, then ask me five minutes later, I'll give you a different answer. It really depends. I'm also a very nuanced person, so it also it's like, you know, what are we specifying? So I can only can give you kind of generalities. Um, there are a few projects which I have yet to bring to fruition, which are always little hard projects, which I'll do eventually. Uh, I was just telling somebody recently about 
how my mind works um, creatively, not that it's anything really more special than anybody else's, but it's just the way mine works, uh, that I happened to be in a meeting at Warner Brothers one time, and I was pitching several series. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly good at pitching, because that's all performance. But at the same time, there's a part of my brain that works on story while I'm doing that, while I, every moment of my life that's happening. And I had seen a movie where my hometown, St. Augustine, had been mentioned, but it had been mentioned because it was interesting, but it didn't really play into the plot. It kind of like stood out because of that. And I had this question about how could I write an interesting story set in my hometown? Just a vague question. And something occurred to me while I was doing this pitch. And before I walked out of that meeting, I had a fully formed screenplay in my head. Now I have yet to do that because I put it aside and said, this will be my pet project. If I ever do an independent film that I will produce um, and maybe direct it, that will be the one. So that one's kind of a favorite. Uh, but you know, the thing is, is every project I work on, even if I'm working for somebody else, that really qualifies as the answer to your question. I, I dive into things. I find things that I love and I just, you know, have to work with them, whether it's screenplays, teleplays or prose, because I am going into the novel area and short stories and things like that. I just dive into it. And I, I don't know, I just, eventually I'll figure out what I want to do with my life. But in the meantime, <laughs> I feel like it's kind of a trying to ask who your favorite child is. And... You know, I, I've used, I don't know, I've used that analogy before. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's funny because you guys are, are very well researched. At least you certainly seem to know my personality because you, you said a couple of things are kind of like, yeah, I, I, I've touched on that before. That's pretty cool. Um, and I've actually described it, um, the favorites list. I, I've said, it's kind of like asking, what's your favorite child? And really what you're answering is, which one do I not hate at the moment? <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I've You've heard been it at before. my house. Okay. <laughs> well, I've heard it before. And then I'm, I've only got one kid and it's still the, if somebody asked me who my favorite child was, I'd still have that moment of the, mm. <laughs> it depends how much has she annoyed me today. Yeah. See? I made a tiny version of myself and oh, good Lord. Oh my gosh. That's, that's a reflection of me. I had no idea. <sighs> Trying to parent myself out of my kid. Oh boy. Yeah. I did that in triple <laughs> kid. I don't advise it. I am in, I don't have kids. I am in awe of anybody who raises children. I'll just say that as a blanket statement. So it's not something that I necessarily want to do, but especially in my industry, friends of mine who have raised families in this industry, which is extremely fickle and difficult, I'm just totally in awe. I really am. Yeah, I think it's a hard enough job anyway. And then you mm -hmm. add in an industry that's fickle on top of it, that's only going to increase the difficulty level. Right. Yeah. You know, so. Anytime you increase the, the fickleness, and the anybody who's going to nitpick at everything you do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so children. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> and now a word from our sponsor. Since 1982, Vital Signs and Graphics has been helping professionals with all their image, logo, and design needs. Perhaps you're looking for signs and banners, truck and trailer lettering, business cards, brochures, or other image and marketing aids, Vital Signs and Graphics in-house design studio has you covered. From logos to apparel, start to finish, Vital Signs and Graphics has everything you need to look and feel professional. Call Rick at 231-652-3300. He'll get you noticed. 
Welcome back to the FSF podcast. All right. So, Stephen, one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why I want to talk to you is because we're all uh, Xena fans. Ah. And, and uh, you know, I remember growing up, that came out while I was in high school. I check that out. Nice. <laughs> and uh, so that came out while I was in high school, right before I graduated, it came out because uh, I graduated in 1995. And I think it started the year I, I was a senior. Thank you for making me feel old. I appreciate it. That's okay. Nicely done. I I'm can just, make it worse. It's going to get worse in just a minute. She's got a question okay. coming up. Oh, okay. it's, I can make it worse. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's a baby. Anyway, uh, so Zeno ended up running, I think, for somewhere six seasons, somewhere about 134, 135 episodes, something like that. Mm-hmm. And from my research and what I found on IMDb, which is not always accurate, it said that you were involved with 98 of those episodes. So, you know, uh, but what I'm wondering is what was your attraction to a show like Xena Warrior Princess? And were you ever surprised that it took off like it did? Uh, my initial attraction was yeah. I enjoy writing and they pay me for it. And I'm not being facetious on that. No, that's it, fine. Was a, it, it was a job. You know, it's like most people in this business don't have the option of picking where you want to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so what had happened was, you remember I mentioned uh, Babs Grayhowski, who produced Riptide. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, Babs and I, to this day, were like, you know, close friends. And she had started working over at Renaissance, uh, Pacific Renaissance on Xena originally when they first conceived it. when it was, you know, Rob Tappert and RJ Stewart and Sam Raimi. And she had... Um, you know, it was a spinoff from Hercules. You knew that. Right. So she called me and she said, I'm working on a show now and I want you to come in and meet everybody. And there's, there's a character on the show. I think you would really enjoy writing, uh, which interestingly enough was Salmonius because he was on Hercules. Yeah. He wasn't on Xena just yet, but he was on Hercules. So I went in um, and for those of you who are Xenites out there, many of you have already heard this story because of the conventions, but I went in to meet everybody. And I go into a meeting with a lot of my own questions to find out what the show's focus is and how I can get into the characters and how I can give them a good story. And so one of the questions I had had to deal with gods or demigods. In -hmm. Hercules, there were a lot of gods, Mm -hmm. but were they going to deal with demigods? And um, Rob Tappert, uh, he said, well, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, Give me an example. And I said, okay, as an example here, let's say, uh, and I literally just made this up on the spot. I said, all right, there's a, one of the demigods is Morpheus. Morpheus is one of the gods asleep in dreams. And I said, if Morpheus, for example, were to, let's say his followers kidnapped Gabrielle and took her into this place where they wanted her to basically give a part of her, let's say that, you know, she's supposed to kill somebody because we know, you know, she's not a killer. Right. Okay. Now that was the episode dream work. Yes, and when I, when I did that, Rob looks at me, he goes, that's a great idea. And my reaction was, yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. But anyway, answer the question. <laughs> so I went off and came up with two other ideas in addition to that. I came back and talked to them and Rob wanted me to write um, that one, Dreamworker. So now I wrote that script up and when I turned it in, uh, apparently I did a really good job and they wanted me to come on staff to work on the show, but they had no producing positions and I had already been producing. So I agreed to come onto the show just as a creative consultant. Um, now at that time, Babs was now moving off of the show because she had some other stuff she wanted to work on. Uh, she was the supervising producer for the show. And so I 
went to talk to RJ Stewart and I said, you have a producing position open. You know my resume. That's what I do. And RJ goes, oh, let me talk to Rob. And Rob goes, oh, let me talk to Sam. And Sam goes, sounds good to me. And so there I was. I suddenly was a producer on Xena. So that's actually how I started out with it. And at the beginning, we had no idea where it was going to go. We seriously were hoping to have fun with it and get another season. And that's really how anybody approaches, well, not anybody, most people approach these shows. But we wanted, you know, at a certain point in your career, you just do want to have fun with it. Your mm -hmm. peace of mind does have a cash value. So that was how I got in there. And then it just started to snowball and it became huge and even more wonderful. Yeah, because I remember it kind of feeling like it was this kind of under the radar show and it was, you know, it was on late nights and and then all of a sudden people were talking about it, people, you know, mm -hmm. people I, I knew and they, they were like, Hey, did you see Zena? Did you see this? Did you, see, you know, they, she fought this or they fought that. And they, you know, and it was just all of a sudden it went from, from kind of being an underlying to people were, were paying attention to it, not just paying attention to it, but you know, uh, and, and the, the kids listening to this, you can go look this up on Google. They would set their VCRs to record it. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yes. But, yeah. Yes. VCRs. Yeah. yeah back yeah. in the day. So yeah, we did become a bit of a, um, you know, we were critically acclaimed, um, mm -hmm. great merchandising. We have the best fans in this day to this day. We have the best fans in the world for that show. Uh, my dad, um, my dad had a, a stroke at one point and during his recovery, he had to do some walking around the neighborhood. And he told me the story about walking around his neighborhood. And there was this guy who was much older than him out in the front yard swinging a stick around like it was sword fighting and my dad looked at me he goes what are you doing and the guy says i just watched my favorite show xena warrior princess and then he turns to my dad and he says you should watch that show there's a guy named sears working on that show and so my dad said yeah that's my son and he goes yeah right it's your son but you should watch that show <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness nice so, like tim mentioned yes i am going I'm, i am a baby i am going to make this worse so in 1995, when Xena was first airing and I was three. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm sure. What? <laughs> you wish, how old were you? Exactly. Yeah. The Where same age you? that my child is now. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I didn't, obviously, I did not catch it on its premieres at late night because, good grief, my parents would not have let me stay up for a nine o'clock show. No, that's just, that's not how that worked. But I remember back to back watching episodes of Hercules and episodes of Xena when they were on daytime TV at like 10 and 11 as reruns. But it was it was great. I mean, I still love the show. I still love both of those shows. But what sucked me in with Xena was that fantasy setting. That was that was what got me right away. Growing up in a house of nerds going from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings to Xena like that was that was right up my alley. But then what really got me was the girl power. I loved that. I loved that Xena was out there with the sword. She wasn't sitting back waiting for a knight in shining armor to come fix her, to come save her. She was saving their butts because mm -hmm. they're useless. <laughs> do you, do you <laughs> right? Do you feel like Xena helped pave the way for the, the feminine heroes that we have now? I mean, without Xena, I don't feel like we would have had Buffy the Vampire Slayer I don't feel like the Marvel comics would have taken off in the Marvel movies as well as they have without having Xena first 
Um, well, obviously, we, we're going to understand I have bias here. But oh, of course. I'm going to Fair uh, answer you very, you know, honestly. I'm just going to admit that I have the bias, but I'm, I'm also like to think of myself as somebody can think outside. Um, we had lightning in a bottle with that show. The people who were involved with it everywhere. Uh, from down on the set, people even you know moving the the sets around all the way up to to the executive producers, and we had almost a 50-50 match as far as gender is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, but we all had the same feeling and attitude, especially about what we refer to as the hero. Um, and with Zena specifically, and I'm speaking just as myself as I wrote the character. Um, Okay, throughout my career, I have been always been complimented on being able to write female characters. And the first thing I do is I tell people, I say yes, but I want to make sure we understand I'm a guy. And it's not because I feel threatened by that. I'm actually proud of the fact that I can, I can write those characters. But when I say I'm a guy, it's the first thing I remind myself when I write a female character. I try to remember, okay, there's no way I'm gonna get the nuance looking through those eyes. Um, I used to tell the story about a, uh, when I used to write scripts um, that had female characters in them, a lead character, I would show them to a friend of mine, a, a woman who was a wonderful writer. And I would tell her, you know, I've done this perfectly. Now tell me where I left the toilet seat up. Because <laughs> I won't hit that. I won't, I, you know, I won't catch hey. that kind of thing. So I think most of us there had a similar attitude um, to that. And what that similar attitude really wasn't that, oh, we're acknowledging our limitations we are accepting that we have limitations and then working three times as hard to make sure we are aware of them and overcome them. So my mantra when I would write Xena was I had one phrase in my mind for this character. And the phrase was this, no excuses. When she walks into a room as she lives her life, no excuses. She doesn't have to excuse her gender. She doesn't have to excuse who she is as a person. When I look at some of the older shows, which were also groundbreaking mm -hmm. uh, in feminism and Wonder Woman being a good example, uh, the Linda Carter Wonder mm -hmm. Woman, there was still a carryover from the 60s and 70s. And what that meant was that um, Wonder Woman in those episodes could be absolutely strong, decisive, independent. But if you notice toward the end of the episodes, there was always that moment with Steve Trevor where she became a little girly. And that was basically an apology to the men. Mm -hmm. yeah, we're sorry sure. that we made her a strong woman, but this makes it a little more acceptable. Right. Okay, I hate that. And by the time we got to Xena, everybody else there had the same idea. It's like, we don't need that. That's ridiculous. So no excuses was the attitude. And once you write a character like that, then you are not writing a female hero. You're writing a hero. You're writing a character. Gender is a part of that character and an important part, but it doesn't define who that character is. So, you know, we were very lucky that everybody was on board about that, whether we spoke it overtly or not. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as it having the effect, whether or not I felt it did, I can tell you absolutely it did. I've heard enough feedback from a lot of our fandom, a lot of people I've met um, who have said that it changed their lives personally, but also um, during that time in the late 90s, there were a lot of shows that tried to emulate Xena. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say it this way. They were 
they were trying to put breasts on a man and call that a woman because they thought, oh, have a woman kick ass and we have a female hero. That's not it. No. <laughs> so you would see a lot of those show up and they would disappear. And it created in some of my future endeavors, it created a huge problem when I would go and pitch series that had female leads because I was still getting that attitude. Mm. Um, I remember one executive telling me um, to knock out all that character crap because it was getting in the way of her boobs. Oh, now oh, that's fantastic. I phrased it a lot nicer than he said it. I would have punched him in the face. <laughs> uh, we, did, we didn't get along very well. I will mm -hmm. say that. Um, Fair enough. But even Joss Whedon uh, has said that he didn't feel Buffy could have gone forward without Xena as, a, as something that he could point to. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of what Joss's controversies are now, that was, that was something sure. he said back during the Buffy era. And I've heard more than one person say that Xena broke open uh, not that she, not just the gates for characters of uh, different genders and orientations, mm -hmm. but for the behind the scenes people, it helped break that open. Nice. So, you know, I just look back and say, look, I did something that I felt was right. I wrote the characters as I felt I, I wanted to see them. I made the messages, the messages that I feel strongly about and that it's had that kind of effect is, is I'm very privileged to have been a part of that. Yeah. But it was time for it, and it and I'm glad it did happen. I will tell you too that as as big of a nerd as I am, my first D and D character was based off of Xena. She was a she was a human fighter because it was the I'm like no we can I want a Xena character. Yeah, like, and it was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and the thing is, Xena, um, in contrast to Hercules, and Hercules was our big brother. Xena would not have been on the air without Hercules. Let's just let's you know admit that two different styles of shows. But Hercules was half God. Xena mm -hmm. was mortal. And we did that, we did what we called the Twilight of the Gods, where mortal stood up and said, No, we're not going to take this anymore. And who's going yeah. to lead us is this uh, this woman. I love it. I need to go watch it again. <laughs> I was thinking that just, too when I right? introduce my daughter to it and see what else I can what other pointy object she starts swinging around now. It's always <laughs> funny when I do a convention and you see little kids who are showing up who, you know, just five, six, seven, eight, ten years old, obviously weren't alive when the series was on the air and they're dressed up as Callisto or dressed up as Gabrielle and Cena. It's kind of cool. That's mm. awesome. My my daughter is really big into Star Wars right now. And so we got her her own lightsaber. And cool. then when the Obi-Wan series came out and they had 10-year-old Leia on screen, I'm like, here we go. This yeah. is it. This See? is this is who my daughter's going to be now. You know, people, people they so many people disregard the impact that those characters have when they are adjusted or presented for people mm -hmm. and you know it's like men could identify with aspects of xena as well mm -hmm. but they're never going to identify as fully as you know a woman in that particular situation or a child when the child sees a child character or mm -hmm. an african-american when they see an african-american character right and it enriches the writing it enriches the presentation and you know, it, it's, I'll get all my, up my soapbox on that, but you can, you can kind of tell where I go in that particular Right, <laughs> but how cool is it that you've made something that's multi-generational, that you have people who are sharing it with their kids and oh. continuing to love it. That's, that's amazing. It is, yeah, it's surreal. I, I can't really explain it past that. It is a little, it is a little bizarre. So I love good. how you're, 
I love how you're like, well, I don't want to get on my soapbox. And I'm over here like, yeah, just keep going. I'm <laughs> and I'm like, here, have another soapbox. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to keep building your soapbox stage for you. I think that entertainment is is our enlightened area if we allow it. It can also mm-hmm. be our darkest area if we allow it. Mm-hmm. And Very true. So one of the things that we don't get to see very often is the behind the scenes. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we don't actually get to see. But I know we've asked other actors and stuff about funny moments that happen behind the scenes. Could you tell us a funny moment in Xena? A funny moment in Xena behind the scenes. Okay. And not yeah. as an actor, obviously. <clears throat> There are a lot of amusing things that happen on every TV show. Xena, obviously, is no exception. Um, I have privy to a lot of our outtakes, um, which are always kind of interesting because our, for the most part, actually, not just for the most part, in as a blanket statement, our, our regular cast got together great because they worked with each other so often and so frequently. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of watching dailies and there's, you know, something that you see, which after they say cut and you start laughing because of something that you saw there. Um, but I will tell you behind the scenes, let's stories you don't often hear about are the behind the scenes in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. So I will tell you one incident that does involve me. Um, and uh, Sam Raimi was, was running the room at the time. Sam was very involved with Rob at the beginning of the series. And then he went off to do American Gothic and, uh, you know, those silly films with a spider thingy uh so but he was involved with the series at the beginning um uh well i should say he was involved the entire way but more concentrated at the beginning so there was an episode where we had the director into our room and we were going through the episode something i'd written and we were trying to uh you know the, the, this is the chance for the director to ask questions about the episode or the scenes or any how we saw things and there was a particular action sequence that um, he was unsure about. He was kind of confused on exactly how it would play out. And I was trying to explain it to him. And, uh, and RJ Stewart actually tells the story quite a bit. He, he finds it to be quite amusing. So I'm trying to explain to him what this action sequence is. <clears throat> and the way, it is, the way it is explained is that Xena is approaching, you know, a bad guy is coming after her with a sword. He's going to cleave her over the head. And as he comes down with his sword, she basically claps the blade like this as she's kind of sliding down and she pulls the blade so that when she hits the ground, excuse me, she hits the ground, the blade goes in and she does a backflip and stands up over him holding the blade. Okay, that is kind of hard to articulate. Mm -hmm. Sure. So he still couldn't do it. And I said, okay, stand up, stand up. He goes, all right. And I said, now pretend like you're swinging a sword over your head. And he does, and I do this. And I do a backflip in the office. <laughs> and I'm standing there as if I'm holding a sword. And there's dead silence. And then suddenly Sam scribbles on a piece of paper and holds up a number 10. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. yes, back then I could do that kind of stuff. My backflips and my martial arts and all that stuff were, were at its peak. But uh, yeah, so that was one of our, our behind-the-scenes type of things. The fact that you could That's ever awesome. do backflips. I can't. I could flop on my back. Does that count? <laughs> I think if I tried, I would just, like, 
throw my back out and lay on the floor for the rest of my life or something. Like, it's, it's a thing you do when you're a writer, you know? I, it does it. <laughs> so there you go. Back flipped like nobody's business. Oh, goodness. <laughs> All right, Stephen, we've come to a point in the show where we like to take our guests through a little bit of a quiz. Okay. And so this is a four-question quiz. Uh-oh. All questions are multiple choice. If you get two, uh, three of the four questions correct, we would like to send you the book that Kathleen's going to hold up. Thank you for right reminding there. me. You're welcome. Oh, okay, it's cool. called it's called Custodians of the Cosmos, Cosmos, and it's written about a young man who wanted to join something quite like Starfleet, but not Starfleet for you know litigious reasons. And um, after he washed out, he rejoins as a custodian to boldly clean up after those who had boldly just went. Of course. So uh, we'd like to send you that book if you get three of the four correct. If, however, you only get two of the four correct or less, we take your picture, we make a meme out of you, and we put you into our 200,000 member Facebook group. We call it our fun sequence. I see. I will have to take my picture if I do that. I actually have a picture that I took of myself as a joke, and it, everybody says that should be a meme. Uh, we will accept but, your contribution yes all right i would have to show it to you some other time anyway okay, okay so am i going to lose my geek cred if uh, if i fail on this well i hope not because it's all about xena it's called xen oh, xenotastic God. i'm gonna have to let me can i do a phone call to call my my xena fans or type real quickly on no we need we need to make sure that you're holding your hands up at all times so you're not on all right. unless unless your phone a friend is lucy lawless no i haven't <laughs> talked to lucy in a while i can call renee hold on <laughs> well there you okay. go <laughs> And all right nick because if you called lucy lawless i'd be like Yay! <laughs> <laughs> all right nick take us out before getting her own series xena appeared in which other show a the adventures of sinbad b hercules the legendary journey or c relic hunter oh let me think what the jeopardy music where is that None of it. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. Hercules. Legendary Correct. Fantastic. Question number two. Who was the original choice to play Xena before they had to drop out due to illness? A, Naomi Watts. B, Alexander Tiding. Or C, Vanessa Angel. You're going to say Gary Coleman. Um, <laughs> Vanessa Angel. That is correct. that that would have been interesting to watch. Oh, by the way, I I met Vanessa backstage at a convention. She was wonderful, and and I asked her about that. You know how she felt about that, and she told me she said it felt bad that she couldn't take it. But then when she watched the show, and this is what she said to me, she said I watched Lucy doing that role, and I realized there was a reason for this. This was her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Lucy wonderful. was Lucy was born to play that. She knocked it out of the park. <laughs> Whose brother was the assassin that was trying to kill Cleopatra? Was it A, Jockster, B, Boreas, or C, Solon? Well, <clears throat> keep in mind, that episode was after I left the show. Jockster. You are- yes, that is yes. correct. You are correct. That's three for three, and that gets you a book. That's a book. Awesome. Hey. Question number four for fun to see whether or not you completely destroy Tim's quiz. Which actor played Julius Caesar? A, Ben Mendelsohn, B, Carl Urban, or C, Joel Edgerton? I don't like that he was smiling as you asked the question. I know, right? (laughs) 
is because the answer to this uh, question, <clears throat> he and I hung out together in Washington, D.C. one time. We went on a private tour of the White House. Oh, gosh. When he was just a baby. And um, uh, yes, there's actually several stories that are told amongst Xena lore about what trouble we got into. <laughs> <laughs> Which I shall not relate at this time. Um, Fair enough. I think there are precious few photos, although I do have one. Uh, in any event, that would be Carl Urban. It Very be. good. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, Carl, Carl has actually been the model for a lot of characters that I have uh, created since then. He's, he was oh, just really? an, he's such an incredible actor, even he before is. Lord of the Rings and the rest of them to break up. Um, in fact, cool. um, I'll show you this back here. Stalag X is a graphic novel that I wrote with Kevin J. Anderson, and the lead in that, when we were developing it, in my mind, was always Carl. So oh, that's he's, just, cool. he's just an incredible he's actor. Fantastic. Everything from Lord of the Rings to even as as horrible of a show as it is, The Boys as <laughs> Billy Butcher. Oh yeah. my word. I have I, a particular angst about that series too. Oh. I have I have not watched a lot of it, but I understand for those who are fans of it, it's a great show. Um, I had co-written a book with uh, the novelist Peter J. Wax called Villainy, which had a similar type of world of superheroes um, that were, in ours, it was a little more humorous in the sense that it was, they were all mandated by the government. You had to have, you know, insurance for it and you had mm. to have sponsorships and everything. It was, but it, ours was centered around basically somebody who wasn't a superhero. So when that show came out, I was like, they got there before me. <laughs> uh, there is oh, a little dark. I, it could go for some more comedy. It could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Stephen. Well, that's four for four. You destroyed my quiz. Good on Woo. you. Glad you could. Uh, when afterwards, we'll get your your address and we'll make sure we get a book off to you. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can our listeners to go to find out more about you and about your work? Uh, well, my website is Stephen L. Sears. That's one word, and it's with a V. Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N-L-S-E-A-R-S.com, not stephensears.com. That's a completely different website. Um, and in fact, there is actually another screenwriter named Stephen Sears. We're friends on Facebook, although we don't talk to each other much, but he did um, uh, Dave Made a Maze. I believe that was his, uh, his first thing. Uh, but you can find me, stephenlsears.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as FSU Writer. Um, yeah, or you can just Google my name, Stephen L. Sears, and you'll see the hat, and that's me, so you'll be able to find me that way. I think you mentioned you had a book. Oh, uh, yeah, there's several projects I still work on today as far as development. I've got two pilots I'm developing right now, um, cool. not in the film portion of them at the moment. We're still in development of project. But yes, in my background here, I will show you uh, this book, which is I wrote Two and a half stories in this. This is an anthology called Last Cities of Earth based on the artwork of Jeff Sturgeon. Um, some of the authors in here are pretty, pretty fantastic. Uh, well, Kevin J. Anderson is in here. I think Michael Resnick, his last story was in this. But this oh, book cool. here, ah, this is uh, Stalag X. This was a graphic novel that I did write with Kevin J. Anderson. The interior artwork is done by Mike Rotera. Awesome, cool. And there's even a novella in the back of it about a character named Deacon, Deacon Story. 
Um, this was something that Kevin and I had been working on for about 10 or 15 years. And we went through a few publishers. We ended up with the Vault Publishing and they put together this great hardback book and cut it out there. And then um, one day, uh, you know, and I took it out immediately to the studios to try to get something developed on it. Uh, we were contacted by a director who really was interested and wanted to acquire the shopping rights, uh, which we did because it was a director that I absolutely love his work. And uh, it, uh, to make this long story short, too late, uh, we just signed a picture with New Republic Entertainment, which did Rocket Man and 1917 okay. for a feature film. And uh, the director's name is Francis Lawrence, who directed three of the Hunger Games, Red Sparrow, I Am Legend, wow, all wow. these fantastic movies. Very so, cool. yeah, I'm quite thrilled about that. Yeah, Francis is just an awesome person to talk to. He's, he really likes working with the source material. And Joy Wilkinson uh, is a screenwriter which will, who will be doing the actual adaptation uh, for the film. So I'm very excited about that. Excellent. Well, we are definitely going to link your socials and your website so that our viewers and our listeners can go and follow your work. Coolness. Absolutely. We also want to remind everybody that subscribing is the single most important thing you can do to help our show continue to grow. And we get more amazing guests like Stephen L. Sears here today uh, and these moments for you to listen to and enjoy. So please subscribe. It helps out more than we can ever really tell you. But we also want to ask that you go check out Stephen's work as well. Uh, he's got a lot of cool things, as we've heard, just heard. He's got some cool things in the works, and I'm kind of anxious to, to see some of this stuff. It looks pretty cool, or sounds pretty cool, rather. But if, for whatever reason, you are not happy with the content of our show today, please feel free to lodge a complaint with the head of our complaint department. Now, you may have expected that because we've talked all, all episode long about Xena, that it would be hurt, but it's not. It's Swamp Thing. If for nothing else, he's pretty pissed off that we keep calling him Swamp Thing. He has feelings too, you know, Swamp Thing feelings. I mean, he's a real person with real person feelings and he wants you to respect them too. But until that happens, we are willing to let him redirect his hostilities to the person who's at the center of your complaint. He only needs one copy of your complaint because he is from the swamp and wants to protect the environment. So place your complaint and this botanist turned superhero will wipe out the offending evildoers in his due time. Well, thanks again, Stephen. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate your time, bud. Thank you very much. Hi. All right, guys, that's going to conclude us for the FSF podcast. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Ciao. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of the FSF podcast, we want to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, please contact us by means of Twitter or Instagram using the handle at FSFPopCast or go to www.fsfpopcast.com and click on the contact me link. Thanks again and hope you enjoyed the episode.